What an incredible image we get when we sing that song. We think about hiding ourselves in the Lord, that He's like a fortress or a castle that we run to in distress, that we dwell in always, not just in distress, but He is daily, constantly a hiding place for us. I know that I, that I speak for Trey and Jared and Patrick and others who get up here and lead us in worship, that it is an incredible privilege to be able, as one of God's people, to stand in front of God's people and do anything, read scripture, preach, sing, play instruments. So uh, thank you for the opportunity and the privilege to, to do this, and it is a great honor and very humbling. If you would, please go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 8. Genesis 8. For the last few weeks, we've been discussing Noah, the ark, and the flood. And we're, I'll just say again, we're not doing a series now on Noah, Noah, Noah's ark, the flood. This is a series on the book of Genesis. But it is at this point in our time in Genesis that we come to this Noah narrative. As I point, I've pointed out before, this is really a bit of a, a break in the the genealogy, the genealogy in chapter 5 introduces Noah and then uh, gives this extended narrative about the flood and then ends at the end of chapter 9, which we'll come to in due course, with Noah's death. And then it just moves on there uh, from there with Noah's sons. And so we're here considering Noah, the ark, and the flood. Two weeks ago, we looked at Noah and the ark which is the focus of chapter 6. Chapter 6 wants to put the spotlight specifically on Noah, who he is, what kind of man he is, and then goes from that into this command from God to build the ark. And so we get this description in chapter 6 of the ark. So Noah and the ark, chapter 6. And then last week we looked at the flood. And the flood is the focus of chapter 7. Flood begins in chapter 7. Noah and his family enter into the ark The flood begins, and then we get a description of the flood as it takes over the earth. So what have been the major effects of this story on us so far? And let me just ask that general question to you. What have been the effects so far on you personally? As you've talked about this in Gospel Community Group over the last few weeks, as you have meditated upon, hopefully, and thought about these things, have you, as you've discussed on the drive away from church, which I hope you do, or at lunch after church, as you've discussed the things that we've covered uh, in our service with your spouse, how is it that this narrative of Noah, the ark, and the flood, how is it that this has most affected you? One of the things that I like about J.C. Ryle's expository thoughts on the Gospels, and I'm not sure if you've encountered that, but that's a great book. It's, it's a several-volume work where J.C. Ryle, literally goes a 19th century British pastor, goes through the Gospels, and he takes big chunks, and he oftentimes says, uh, there are three lessons that we get from this chapter, this section. There are four lessons or five lessons and so forth. And I think what we want to kind of pause for a moment and do is ask, what are the overarching lessons or or effects that we've had as we've gone through this portion of God's Word? And I think there are basically four. And I don't know how God has 
spoken to you specifically. And it's amazing sometimes how you can talk with people after a service and, and God will take a particular point or maybe even a side point or a, a sub, sub, sub point and, and just apply that to the heart in very specific ways. And so I'm always amazed to hear of how God is applying his word to his people's lives. But I think there are four major effects as we've gone through this narrative so far that, that, that I think have happened to us or should at least have happened. First, we've seen the character of God. That is always the case in the Bible. But as we read these opening chapters of Genesis, Moses and the Holy Spirit who inspired Moses really wants to set a foundation for who this God is. So we have repeatedly returned to the portrayal of God in the opening chapters of Genesis. And that is one of the main effects on us as we've gone through is it has given us an understanding of the character of God. Chapter by chapter, our theology is beginning to fill out. We're beginning to see who this God is. And Israel, who would have first read this, would have, would have been putting together their understanding of the God of their forefathers. As Moses took them out of Egypt, they would have acquired many pagan practices and they would have forgotten largely about their history. And so Moses wants to bring them back to the very beginning of creation and bring them back to the story of their forefathers. He wants to construct for them a picture of who their God is. And that, I think, is one of the main things the Lord wants to do for us. And I think we are being taught in this two major things about the Lord as we look at the narrative of Noah. We are being led by the hand to trust God and to fear God. And what I mean by fear for the Christian is reverential awe. That means that we look at God in a state of wonder and awe and we fall on our faces, not in terror, but in reverence. Now for the unbeliever... It is terror, and so much so that Jesus will talk about the end of time, that the mountains, that the people will cry out, that the mountains fall on them to protect them from the wrath of Almighty God. And so there is fear, the terror kind of fear, in the heart, should be in the heart of an unbeliever. But for a believer, it is a state of reverential awe. So that's the first thing, the first effect is the character of God. The second effect is that we've seen the character of Noah as we've gone through this narrative. And this is very important because Noah really is the quintessential righteous person. And I think God wants to use Noah in this way for us. And you have to be careful here because one of the things we want to avoid, as I've said before, is this kind of moralism where we just read the Bible as a series of stories about great men, great women, And we say, grow up and be like this person, grow up and be like that person. And when we strip the Bible of its theological focus, its Christ-centeredness, and we do that with the Bible, then we have erred. We've turned Christianity into a system of morals with moral exemplary figures to follow. So we don't want to make that that large-scale error, but we do want to see these men of faith. And we do want to follow in their Footsteps, And so I think God is using Noah to beckon us to walk on the path of faithful obedience and distinction from the world. And maybe God has done that in your heart. 
Maybe as we've read about Noah, you've considered the worldliness that you've allowed to creep into your own heart or to your own family, to your own thinking, and you've become desensitized. You really just look like everybody else. You think like everybody else. You raise children like everybody else. And maybe Noah is being used by God to beckon you to distinction. So that's the second. We see the character of God. We see the character of Noah. A third effect is that we've seen little pictures of Christ. And this has been the most striking feature to me as I've walked through and preached through so far these chapters of Genesis is to see how present the Lord Jesus Christ is in the opening chapters of Genesis. God is already pointing us to the ultimate plan by giving us little glimpses of the Savior. He's giving us little types and shadows of the Christ to come. So maybe for you, this has been an opportunity to relish in Christ freshly. And then finally, so we see the character of God, the character of Noah, little pictures of Christ. And then finally, a fourth major effect that I hope this time in the Noah narrative has had is that we've seen the fruit of sin. Sin is a major theme of the opening chapters of Genesis Because all those crazy stories that we're going to read about later in Genesis and all of the the craziness that we're going to see in books like Judges, for example, all of the idolatry that we're going to read about in the history of the Old Testament that the prophets are going to constantly be attacking, all of the consequences of sin we're going to see among Israel as they're carried away from their land into bondage, And of the Pharisees, when Jesus comes on the scene, the darkness and hardness of their hearts. All of that sin that we read about in the Bible goes back to these opening chapters. And we've seen the fruit of it. What sin does on the inside of the person. What sin is doing on the inside of you and me. What sin does on the outside how sin is perceived by God. What what does God think? What does God feel when he looks down upon the earth, when he looks down upon your own heart? What What does he see when he sees sin? How it is perceived by God and the result of our sin. The wages of sins, the language that Paul will use. The wages of sin is death. You put in work each day at your job and and you get wages. And the way the Bible describes it is that we spend a lifetime sinning. And then we stand before God and we receive the wages of our sin, which is death, eternal death, separation from God. So let me ask you again, how has God been using this story to call you to himself, Because that's what God wants to do. Every time we come here, we hear preaching. Every time we come here and we worship together, that's what God is doing. He is, he's, he's offering an invitation. He's saying essentially, come to me, as Jesus did. Come to me, all you who labor under the heavy weight of sin and self-righteousness. Come to me and find rest. Come to me and find forgiveness. Come to me and find a loving, heavenly Father. So how is it that God is calling you. Well, in one way or another, all of these effects that I've just mentioned continue today as we come to chapter 8. 
We continue to see these as the Noah narrative progresses. All of these effects are present. So the title for the sermon this morning is The Flood Finished. We've been prepared for the flood in chapter 6. We've seen it take over the earth in chapter 7. And now today we see it end in chapter 8. So if you will go ahead and stand with me for the reading of God's word. We're going to cover all of chapter 8. Chapter 8, verses 1 to 22. This is God's word, and it is meant for the building up of his people. Verse 1. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth, and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens was restrained, and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated, and in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters continued to abate until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen, At the end of 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot. And she returned to him to the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening. And behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove. And she did not return to him any more. In the, 600, in, in the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing and every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, 
cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. This is God's Word. You can go ahead and be seated. Let's pray. Ask that the Lord would open our ears and open our hearts. Both are needed. We need attentive ears and minds, and we need receptive hearts. So we ask the Lord for that now. Let's pray. Our sovereign Father, our heavenly Father, our God who can do all things, who loves us with a love that we could never fathom, the depth of it. Father, we thank you that we can come to you now and speak to you as your children. What a special thing it is to be gathered in the name of your Son, to hallow your name, Father. We thank you that we call you Father by faith, that you have put within our hearts your Spirit who cries out within us, Abba, Father. We thank you for him, Father, and we pray that today he would would work in us to trust you more, to see you as the loving, faithful Father that you are. Father, for those among us maybe who do not know you as Father, maybe as, as Martin Luther, as he was moving towards his conversion, saw you only as a a wrathful God taking vengeance upon sin. And as he tried repeatedly to please you through his efforts, thank you, Father, that in a cataclysmic moment in history, you revealed to him the truth of Romans 1.17, that the righteous will live by faith. And God, we praise you that you took hold of his heart with this truth, And you have been taking hold of hearts with this truth since then and before then. And Father, for many of us, you have done the same. We praise you for this. We ask that you would do it again today in the hearts of those who do not know you. Father, we pray that you would be glorified here in this place, that you would be lifted up high in everyone's hearts, that you would be, that you would sit upon the throne of every person We pray for our kids in the kids' ministry this morning. Father, we know that their little hearts and minds are busy. Their bodies especially are busy. But Father, we know that you can speak to them in ways that sometimes baffle our minds. And Father, we pray today that you would make the profound truths of your word simple and digestible to our little ones. We pray that you would cut them to the heart that you would open up a wound that only you can heal, that you would show them their sin and their need of a Savior. Father, would you do that among all of us? Lord, we love you because you first loved us. And we pray now that as we enter into this very special time of study of your word, that, that you would bless it. God, we know that your spirit is needed if we are to do anything with this. And so, God, be merciful to us in meeting us here this morning, we ask. We love you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis chapter 8. Our attention is drawn to the actions of God and Noah. 
throughout the chapter. So three points this morning to guide us through the text as we have it here. Uh, These are all listed for you in the bulletin. You'll see them. Three points. God's remembrance and removal. First. Secondly, Noah's waiting and worshiping. And then thirdly, God's acceptance and attitude. So let's look at the first of these. God's remembrance and removal. There are few places in the Bible that match the flood event in giving us an overwhelming sense of God's power. Uh, Let there be light and there was light, I think, is probably the most profound thing that we have seen so far. But in terms of, if if you could watch God work, and we see God work in creation, the effects of of God's power are demonstrated in creation. And we see this in all kinds of ways. Just the fact that, that, uh, that, that human beings can come together, uh, a husband and a wife, and can, and can through uh, their, their love and union for one another, can create children. A powerful act of God. And the fact that we see the seasons move one after the other and transition powerful act of God. But if we could, could watch God work, probably one of the most profound scenes that we could watch would be this flood. Gives us an overwhelming sense of his power. Last week when discussing the flood, we saw that it was entirely under God's control. It was an act of God. God used nature, but nature itself was merely a tool in the hand of God. God is the one who sustains creation, we read in the Bible. And God is the one who controls and owns and masters creation. It is his. And so we read in chapter 7, verse 4, I will send rain. I will blot out. It is God's power that lies behind what we read in chapter 7, verse 11. All the fountains of the great deep burst forth. That's an incredible idea. That subterranean water was just flowing up out of the earth everywhere. Incredible scene. Such power. We know the power of water. We've seen it in tsunamis and hurricanes. The power of water in a way that we have never imagined it or seen it before. All the fountains of the great deep burst forth and the windows of the heavens were opened. And in the repeated idea at the end of chapter 7, we see this. The waters prevailed. As the waters prevailed, we're meant to understand that God prevails. As the waters are triumphing over the earth, we are meant to see that God is triumphing. His righteousness, His judgment is triumphing over sin. And as we come to chapter 8, we have reached the end of a 150-day period of the waters prevailing on the earth. We have 40 days of water raining and gushing, coming from above and coming from below, followed by 110 days of everything being submerged under the water. The end result is what we see in chapter 7, verse 20. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep, or roughly 22 feet, which means... That the water that had covered the earth, the entire globe, covered all the mountains by 22 feet. And then we get into chapter 8. And what do we see here? God powerfully 
undoing and reversing all of this. We see God removing the waters from the earth. Just as God had had filled the earth back up with waters, he had covered the land with waters. Now we see that same God with that same exercising of his power, removing those waters from the earth. And so in chapter 8, verse 1, we get this. God made a wind blow over the earth. And then listen to the language that follows in verses 1 to 14. It's incredible. And we read, these, we read passages like this really quickly. And sometimes we miss the way that the language is meant to sort of be heaped up to give us a powerful effect. So verses 1 to 14, we get this. The waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain was restrained. The waters receded. The waters had abated. Subsided, restrained, abated, receded. All of this language, just different Hebrew words meant to give us one main idea. And that is God is making the water go away. He's removing it. The effect we find in language like this. The ark came to rest. The tops of the mountains were seen. And all of this culminates in verse 14. The earth had dried out. So it wasn't just that God wanted to make sure that the mountains were visible so Noah and his family and the animals could camp out on a really tall mountain for a while, maybe swim to another mountain. (laughs) That wasn't the case. God dried up the earth. Seemed to have the the language here. It It reminds me of the parting of the Red Sea. God parted the waters and it wasn't a muddy mess. It was dry ground. God parted the waters and they walked across on dry ground. And now we get here in the culmination of all of this removing of water, we get dry ground. So we see this power in removing the waters. But here is what I really want to draw your attention to. Why does God do all of this? Why does he remove these waters? The very first words of the chapter give us the answer. And here's what they say. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. I've oftentimes referred to this but God language. This is very similar to what we find in Ephesians chapter 2. We get this terrible situation of human sinfulness. And then we get to the end of that. And halfway through that passage, we get these words, but God. But God stepped in to that children of wrathness. God stepped in to that being under the the prince of the power of the air, being sons of disobedience. And all that we find in those opening verses of Ephesians chapter 2 of lostness and deadness and sin. And God steps in, but God. And that's exactly what we find here. But God. And what's the word? Remembered Noah. This word to remember really conveys the idea of to think about. And when used of God, it is always accompanied by action. So there's one Old Testament scholar whom you might be familiar with. His name is Reverend Childs. And this is how he describes it. God's remembering always implies his movement towards the object. Catch that. Always implies his movement towards the object. The essence of God's remembering lies in his acting towards someone because of a previous commitment. 
And that's exactly what we have here with God. We see an example of this in Exodus chapter 2. Remember in the opening scene of Exodus, the Pharaoh of Egypt has this particular Pharaoh does not know of the previous story of Joseph, Jacob's son, who helped the Egyptians to survive a famine. And we get the Hebrew people at the very beginning of Exodus, and they are a massive people. And the Egyptians decide, you know what, we're going to just take all these Hebrews, we're going to round them up, and we're going to enslave them. We're going to make them work. We're going to make them build our beautiful cities and our beautiful monuments, and they will be our slaves. And by the time we get to Exodus chapter 2, verse 24, this is what it says. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered. Same idea, same language. And God remembered what? What did God remember? His covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And that's when we begin to see God moves towards the people of Israel and he begins to act for them in incredible ways. He sends the plagues on Egypt and he takes his people and carries them out of an enslaved land or of a land in which they are enslaved. And here in Genesis 8, God remembers his promise to spare Noah and those on board the ark. He remembers Noah's righteous devotion He remembers all the creatures that he has made, and he acts. So all of this removing of water, all of this bringing about the dry land is a result, just as the plagues were in Egypt, is a result of God's remembering. So what does this tell us? Genesis 8, I think, is one of the most incredible pictures of God's faithfulness. But even more, God's faithfulness and power coming together. That's exactly what we see in these opening verses. It begins with God remembering. And then we have God in all of his glorious power over creation, removing all of these waters. A faithful God and a powerful God at the same time. It is God's power at the service of his faithfulness. So here's what we need to see. God both can and he will remember his promises to us. He can and he will. And this is always the struggle in the Christian life. Believing God, trusting God, both that he can and that he will. Because it's oftentimes the case that we struggle with one or the other. God, do you even hear me? Do you even care? I've been praying about this thing for a very long time and you haven't said anything. You haven't changed my circumstances. You haven't saved this person I love. You haven't taken away this struggle that I have. Maybe, God, you just don't really love me as a child. Maybe you don't really have my good in view. Isn't that exactly what Satan tempted Eve with in the garden? Maybe God is not good. Maybe he doesn't will your good, Eve. Maybe he's not faithful to do for you what he said that he would do when he created. Or maybe we just don't think God can. Maybe we just have a very small God. Maybe your God is so frail, not the biblical God. And this is one of the incredible things about going through the Bible is that God becomes large to us. This is, this is the, the purpose of going through the Bible. Let me say this. 
studying God's word, preaching, reading the word, coming together each week to, to talk about the word is not, it is not so that we have little nuggets for life. That kind of preaching is powerless. That kind of preaching has nothing. It is empty. It is man-centered. It is godless. The reason for being in God's word is that we begin to see a great big God. That God becomes glorious. He becomes powerful. He becomes loving. And we treasure him. We trust him. We revere him. And then all those little practical bits happen. They begin to happen because we love God for who he declares himself to be. He can and he will fulfill his promises to us. Recently, and you may have listened to this, uh, I was listening to an Ask Pastor John episode with our friend Tony Ranke. And I don't know if you, if you listen to uh, Ask Pastor John, but I think it's a really helpful thing to include in your Christian life. It's a nice little quick 10-minute uh, bit where they send in, various people send in, I think they're up 1,200, I don't know the exact number, but send in a question to John Piper, and he very biblically answers that question. There's a whole host of questions, so I, I just want to point you to that, to that very helpful resource. But recently... There was an Ask Pastor John episode entitled, John Piper's Most Used Promises. And it was very helpful because he was just talking on a personal level about how certain promises of God in the Bible have been appropriated by him throughout his life. And it is very helpful for us to consider these promises. Because when we do in faith, we begin to believe more and more that God can and God will. That he is a faithful God. And so we see this about God, his remembering and his removing. But now we come to Noah. I want to put the spotlight on him for a moment. Noah's waiting and worshiping. And this is the second point there on your outline. Noah's waiting and worshiping. We have already observed a number of things about Noah. We've been introduced to this guy back in chapter, well, chapter 5, but especially chapter 6. He's described in Chapter 6, verses 8 to 9, is one who received God's grace. So we mustn't forget that. Noah is a graced man. And at the, at the center of every Christian is grace, the favor of God, the unmerited favor and gift of God. And that is who Noah is. He's a man who's received God's undeserved favor. He's described as a righteous man a blameless man in his generation, and he was a man who walked with God. Righteous, blameless, walking with God. And in addition to these very uh, precise descriptors, we get these, this repeated idea of Noah's obedience. So he's told to build an ark, to receive animals and to store food. And what does it say in chapter 6, verse 22? Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. And then in chapter 7, told to enter the ark with his family and the representative animals. And then in verse 9, they went into the ark with God as Noah had commanded him. As, as God had commanded Noah, sorry. And now here in chapter 8, we get the same obedience. Verse 16, go out from the ark. Noah's response, verse 18, so Noah went out. It's incredible. I mean, God does not, Noah does not sit and have a dialogue with God when God tells him to do something. 
He just does it. This is the way that the Bible is trying to, to present to, to Israel as, as Moses is by the uh, inspiration of the Holy Spirit writing out Genesis. And Israel is reading this. God is trying to communicate to his people. You must obey me. You must obey my word. If you do not obey my word, curses. If you do obey my word, blessings. And we see here, Noah is the quintessential obeyer of God. And in all of this righteousness and obedience, we see that Noah is the typical man of faith. Hebrews eleven seven, which we've read before. I want to read it again here. By faith, Noah being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. So all of this obedience is, is an overflow of his faith. Noah believes that God can and will. He believes in God. He trusts God. Whatever he says, he believes. And it is out of this faith that we observe two particular things here in chapter 8 about Noah. We get a little more detail about this character Noah in chapter 8. And the first of these is that Noah waits on God. He waits on God. He waits patiently in the ark until he hears the command from God in verse 16 to exit. Can you imagine? I mean, I, I would understand his experience in the ark to have been somewhat tumultuous. And here's what I mean by that. I mean, obviously, all the animals and the few people, it's a crazy setup, constantly working. And as I said, you can Go, one resource to look at is the Institute for Creation Research or Answers in Genesis where they talk about, you know, could there really have been all the animal kinds on the ark? And you can, you can read through that and process that yourself and make your own decision about, about how that worked and how they could have been all fed by, by these eight people. But what we see here is Noah in the ark and he's wanting probably to get out of that ark. It's not very lit up. And I would understand that as the waters are moving, the ark is moving too. God doesn't just put Noah and his family in an ark that just kind of hovers above the flood with no you know, wind movement, with no water movement. I mean, this thing is jostling about, I imagine. God does not say that he's going to protect us from, from enduring the things we have to endure in this life. He just tells us that he's going to keep us ultimately secure and safe. And that is precisely what he did for Noah. But I imagine that being in this jostling boat for all of this time with all of these smelly animals and smelly people, I'm sure he's waiting on God patiently. As the psalmist says in Psalm 27, 14, wait for the Lord, be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. But there is something that we notice about this waiting. It is not idle. Now that's important for us to think about. We may, we have people tell us, people use a lot of cliches, you know, in Christianity. Surrender to God. Kind of a cliche. Wait on the Lord. And we just heard the psalmist say that. So we don't mock the language. But oftentimes we just sort of say these things and they don't really have any meaning. Wait on the Lord. Okay, what in the world are you talking about? Well, what we know 
is that waiting on God does not mean just sitting around, eating a bag of chips, comfortably in your chair, for God to show up and drop something in your lap. For God to just beam down some message. That's not what we see with Noah. It's incredible. Noah is trusting God. He's waiting patiently on God. But he's not just sitting in the middle of the ark waiting on God to speak. Okay, Noah, everything's good. It's all where it needs to be. Land dried out. Go ahead and exit the ark. Okay, God, he gets up, walks off of the ark. That's not the case at all. Noah goes on a search mission for dry land using these birds. That's what we have here. This raven, these three little ventures of the dove. This is Noah actively looking for dry land as he waits patiently on the Lord. And what this shows us is that Noah's faith, this is so important, was anticipatory in nature. What that means is Noah knows there's going to be dry land. So he starts looking for it. He knows that that's coming. Why? Because God said so. Because that's what God is going to do. Of course God would dry out the land. Of course God would remember him. Of course God would save him. So he acts, see this, he acts in accordance with that faith, not contrary to that faith by doing something that God himself was going to do because God was the one who spoke to him and told him to leave the ark. But he acts in line with that faith. And maybe that's something that you need to hear this morning. Maybe you're the kind of person who just kind of lazily sits back It says, oh God, I just can't figure this thing out. I don't know what's next. I'm not sure what to do. And you just don't do anything. You become paralyzed. And you're just waiting on God to just send you a bubble from heaven. That wasn't Noah. And I think this is instructive for us. The one who shut the door would open it. Noah believed that. So what does our waiting look like? Is it trusting patience? Is it anticipatory action? Or do we have trouble waiting to begin with? And when we do, do we just shut down? But there is another action that we see here rising out of Noah's faith. In addition to his waiting, we also see his worshiping. In fact, the very first thing Noah does when he gets off the ark is build an altar and make offerings to the Lord. He doesn't miss a beat. I mean, he doesn't even get off and figure out where am I going to build my house? Um, what, what are we going to do with all of these animals? How are we going to make them disperse? Uh, he doesn't, he doesn't the, the text just jumps directly into what we read in verse 20. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. Kent Hughes, a commentator and pastor of many years, describes it this way, the first thought of Noah was Godward. And we would expect that because Noah walks with God. And he didn't stop walking with God in the ark. He had been communing with God, praying to God, obeying God, meditating upon God as he loved his wife and as he shepherded the hearts of his sons and his daughters-in-law. And as he cared for those, those creatures that reflected the, the glorious design of the creator. He got off with a Godward mind 
and focused on the Lord. And I just want to ask this question of us. When God expresses his faithfulness to us, do we jump into the blessing and jump over the giver? And here's what I mean. This happens a lot. We're tempted to do this every time God does something great for us. Imagine many times in your life where you have prayed to the Lord about something very specific. And your heart is just burdened with it. It's heavy. And you pray and you pray and you pray to God. And God answers your prayer in such a a gratifying way. He answers it even clearly. I mean, he shows you that he actually answered the prayer in his providential care. He shows you he did that. And you're delighted in the news and you just scurry on in the blessing. You just jump right into the blessing and you forget about the Lord. Forget all about God. Jumping into the blessing and jumping over the giver. This was not the case for Noah. He got off the boat and he immediately looked up into the heavens and he worshipped his maker. And these burnt offerings, as described later in Leviticus 1, involve the whole animal being offered. The the whole animal is put up there, burnt up in flames. And all of this pictures the offering of one's entire self to God. It is meant to show, God, I give myself entirely to you. The, the offering burnt up. And we have here, he, he did burnt offerings. And that's what all these clean animals were for. He's offering up these clean animals to God as soon as he gets off the ark. These animals he's fed and cared for so that he might offer them to God in worship. But there is more. There is more to this offering than simple gratitude and dedication to God. There's more here. And that leads to our final point this morning as we finish up. God's acceptance and attitude. In verses 21 to 22, we see God's response to Noah's act of worship, to his burnt offering. So let's look there, verses 21 to 22. And when the Lord smelled, God does not have a nose. Let me just say that. The Lord Jesus does. God incarnate. But God is incorporeal. He does not have a body. He is immaterial. He is spirit, Jesus says to the Samaritan woman. Just little parentheses. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And just to put it to to put it very simply, here we have a picture of atonement. And here's what I mean by that. Noah offers sacrifices to God, and God responds to those sacrifices with acceptance and a determination to show grace. To all of humanity. And for that matter, not just all of humanity. Not just Noah's, Noah and his sons and all other human beings that will follow from Noah. But actually all of creation. God accepts Noah's sacrifice. And it is out of this sacrifice of Noah that he determines to show his grace to all of creation. In some respects, we go back here. Why are we sitting in this room? 
Why was humanity not wiped out? We know ultimately it was Christ, and we'll talk about that in a moment. But really, in a concrete human way, it goes back to Noah's sacrifice. Noah offered this sacrifice to God, and God accepted it, and his disposition towards humanity, the same humanity he had just wiped off the planet, changes. His disposition becomes one of grace towards all humanity. And we'll talk a little bit more about what this means next week as we get into chapter 9. But here's one thing I want you to see. Human nature has not changed. It's not as though Noah and his sons get off the ark and now we have a brighter day. Now humanity will be less sinful. Verse 21 says the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. That's what we're dealing with today in our culture. That's what we're dealing with today in our own hearts. That's what we're dealing with in our marriages and and in our homes. We're dealing with the intentions of our hearts being evil. We're dealing with the fact that we have all these sinful passions and desires within us that are guided towards the worship of self. I love the way, just as a side note, I love the way I heard one person speak about abortion somewhat recently. And described abortion is probably the most vivid, accurate description of abortion I have ever heard. He described it this way. Abortion is a modern form of child sacrifice to the God of self. And that is what we see even in our own day. Human beings are the same. We are the same. But God looks upon the sacrifice of Noah, as we read here, and shows grace to humanity in, in response. And we know this from the language of God smelling the pleasing or soothing aroma. This is very evocative and important language. Gordon Wynnum, a, a commentator on Genesis, describes it this way. Soothing sacrifices have a restful, listen to this, have a restful soothing, pacifying effect on God. That God's anger is appeased by sacrifice is the clear implication of this phrase. What we have here is an image of burning hot wrath against human sin. Burning hot wrath against man. And Noah offers a sacrifice and it soothes the Lord's anger. It soothes the Lord's wrath. And as we finish up this morning, I want to draw your attention to two features that point us once again to the Lord Jesus Christ. Because we are most certainly meant to to read these words and to see a glorious Christ. So let me give you these two features as we close this morning. First, what we have here is one man acting as a priest for all. Do you see that? You can't miss it. One man acting as a priest for all. He acts as an intercessor between God, a holy God, and man, a sinful humanity. And this can't do anything other than point us to our high priest, to Christ. When you open up the the book of Hebrews and you read about Jesus being our high priest, that he enters into the Holy of Holies and he offers a sacrifice 
for us. He's one man. There will only be people in heaven who came through the one man. There is salvation under no other name. We get to heaven. We stand before God. Do you know my son? If you do, you're in. If you don't, get away from me, God will say. Jesus says that clearly. The same burning, hot wrath of God will be poured out on you. If you do not know the Son. And so we see that Christ walks into the holy place. Before God, he offers himself as a sacrifice. And God receives that sacrifice as a soothing aroma. And that leads to the second thing I wanted to say, the second feature. Christ is not just the priest, but he is also the sacrifice. Christ went into the holy place and he offered himself to God on the cross to appease his wrath against sinners so that God's anger would pass over us. There are two kinds of people, people upon whom God's wrath falls. And then there are those for whom God's wrath has been transferred to Jesus. That's it. There are no good people and better people. There's no spectrum of people. There are two kinds. If Christ were to come back right now, every person in this room would either be someone for whom Christ died, someone for whom Christ took the sin off and put it on his own back, and he died naked upon the cross, enduring the wrath of his eternal Father. Or there will be those who stand before God ashamed, guilty under his judgment. God is not going to forgive sin any other way. Let me say that. Sometimes I think people are tempted to think, you know, God is so good, he'll forgive me. God forgives only if the sin's been paid for by Jesus. And the sin has only been paid for by Jesus if you have trusted in Jesus and repented of your sin to follow him. That's it. Apart from that, there is no forgiveness of sin. There is no pardon. God will judge sinners. And Christ was judged for us. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 2 says, Christ's death, listen to this, this is amazing. Christ's death for us was a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Do you see that? I don't know if Paul was thinking about Genesis chapter 8 when he wrote that. But that's what we have. The first occurrence here in the Bible of anything like this, that God receives that. He smells that, to to use human language, to give us a human image, something to hold on to. It's as though he, he smells that, and it is pleasing to him. And Christ's sacrifice for sinners, which, which is yours through faith in him, is a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So let me finish this morning with this question. What does God smell <clears throat> When he looks down over your life, what does he smell? Does he smell the aroma of Christ? Perfect. Or does he smell the aroma of death? It's one or the other. The aroma of Christ or the aroma 
of death. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our Savior. Father, we thank you for Noah, your grace to him, his faithfulness to you. But God, as we'll soon see, Noah's just a man, a mere man like us, a man whose intentions are also evil from his youth, a man who ultimately would have done nothing apart from your good favor. But then we see Christ. We see him perfect, perfect, glorious, dying, dying for me, dying for us, beaten by wicked men, brutish men, mocked by his own people, scorned by everyone who passed him, naked, bearing your hatred for sin, for vileness, for my vileness, for our vileness, God. We pray that Christ would become great to us, that he would become a treasure in the midst of our busy, worldly lives, that we would see him as the seed, the great seed, that we would see him as the ark, that we would see him as the priest, and that we would see him as the one sacrifice that appeases your just wrath against sin. God, I pray that you would save sinners. God, if there are people who've been coming here for weeks and weeks, maybe months, maybe years, who really don't know you, God, would you be merciful to them this morning? Give them courage to step away from their sin and to lean into you, to trust you for forgiveness, to follow you, to say, sin is not better than Jesus. God, would you help us all to follow you through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.